Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing, Episode 289, Sad Puppies Interview with Larry Coria and Brad Torgerson. And now, constructed on a Zeppelin by an apprentice mage and delivered by a rocket ship to a benevolent dragon, Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing. Welcome to Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing, your podcast for science fiction and fantasy media. This is Brent Bowen. If this is your first time listening to the show, again, welcome. If you're a returning listener, you may recall in episode 288 that I'll be assuming the executive producer responsibilities and Christy Cherish will be joining me as co-host. Sean Farrell, who's been the longtime executive producer, has had to step away, and I'm not going to go back into all the reminiscing I did in episode 288, but I'm going to miss Sean, truly miss Sean and what he's done for the show. So again, Sean, I'll, I'll miss you, but he'll return from time to time as a guest. So you'll want to continue listening to this show if, if you're as big a fan of Sean as I am. One of the things I want to assure longtime listeners is that the core of the show will remain the same. But there will be a slight shift, and some of that shift will be really a product of the changes within the publishing industry and a lot of the move from storytelling being traditionally done in print to more of a digital format. So I know one of the things Christy and I want to do is include from time to time or showcase from time to time a reflection of what's going on in the industry from a, a digital, either a digital publishing standpoint, gaming, but making sure we're fully appreciating how the publishing world has changed and including those types of products and discussion in the show. So that's one of the things you can expect. One of the other things you can expect from the show moving forward is a mission statement that I know I'll put a little bit of my mark on the show. And one of the things you should know about me is I have a background in journalism. And one of my great journalism professors used to say that good media would tell us not what to think, but what to think about. And that notion will ring true in our very first guest that we bring to you today. And today we're bringing you an interview with the organizers of the Sad Puppies effort. And we'll discuss with them their goals for the Sad Puppies campaign. But also, you should know with some of our future guests, we'll bring you opinions that run the spectrum, really, of this whole notion of inclusion. And this has been a topic that has affected genre for some time, but really within the last several years, has come to a head. So as we introduce several different guests over the next, certainly the next month to two months, we'll be including or asking them questions about the Sad Puppies effort and allow them to express their opinions as well. And that's one thing we would want to encourage you to do. If you have an intense and passionate interest in what's going on, uh, about this whole notion of inclusion, we'd welcome you to share your feedback either on the blog or via our social media channels like Twitter and Facebook. 
we would definitely welcome your comments. And one thing we want you to know, particularly about this episode, is that it does run a little long. It's a little more than an hour. So Christy and I won't, we're just going to give you the interview. And then Christy and I will express some of our thoughts about this discussion in our next show. So you'll have to listen to this, maybe formulate your own opinions, and then wait to the next episode to get some of the point of view that Christy and I had about our conversation with Larry and Brad. But until that time, there's probably no better way to get into the discussion than to hear our conversation with Larry Coria and Brad Torgerson. Again, we truly appreciate you listening to the show and hope you'll stay with us for a long time. This is Brent Bowen. And this is Christy Cherish. Joining us to talk about the Hugo Awards and Sad Puppies, our New York Times bestselling author, Larry Coria. And Larry, give me the uh, Portuguese pronunciation of that, too, because I know I, I've seen some things with you online that y- you've gone to take in the non-Portuguese pronunciation of that. Well, in America, it's just Korea like the country, and uh, Portuguese is Korea. Korea. Well, well uh, welcome. Uh, Larry's of the Monster Hunter International and the Grim Noir Chronicle series fame. And also joining us is Brad Torgerson. And Brad probably has won the Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing Proximity Award, as he was just on the show uh, not too long ago. So you, you may have bookended this, Brad, to, to where you're uh, on as the most recent returning guest. So um, de- <laughs> definitely welcome welcome back. And, and Brad was on a couple weeks ago to talk about The Chaplain's War from Bain Books. Both Larry and Brad are decorated authors with Hugo Award nominations under their belts. And so that sort of brings us into the Hugo Awards nominations, which uh, the deadlines for those are just around the corner. For those of you reader, uh, listeners who aren't familiar with them, they've been around for 70-odd years, and traditionally they've been considered one of the most prestigious awards out there for speculative fiction authors. They're also a community-voted award, voted by the World Science Fiction Society, meaning that members, not a jury, nominate and vote. Popularity-driven awards are almost never without controversy, and the Hugos over the past three years are no exception. Steamrolled in a lot of ways by the Sad Puppies campaign. So more on that in a sec. First off, Brad and Larry, thank you so much for joining us today on the show. For listeners who aren't familiar with your work, tell us a bit about yourselves and what it is you write. Uh, do you first? go first? Or or go, ahead. go ahead, Brad. <laughs> okay. After so, you, uh, no, I, after you, sir. No, after you. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I cut my teeth doing short fiction in the pages of Analog Magazine. Uh, I, I broke in originally about five years ago with Writers of the Future, but yeah, I've done a lot of short fiction in uh, Analog Magazine, which is where the uh, the Hugo nominations have come in. Um, I've had several pieces that have been in Analog uh, be up for the Hugo. Uh, I've won a couple of Readers' Choice Awards out of that magazine. And two of those pieces went on to form the basis of the, the Bain book that I was on uh, the show earlier to talk about. I think it was late last year, or earlier this year. I, I can't remember exactly when I did the interview, but that's mostly what I'm known for. And yeah, I, being a Bain author, you know, Bain's like a big happy family. You really get to know a lot of people, and it's a, it's a, it's a good publisher. And a, a Larry, uh, pretty much was my my 
my guide uh, getting into Bain, you know, he gave the, the good word to Tony, our editor, way back in 2011, when I was still really, really brand new to the field. And uh, after that, it was just a matter of turning in material that Tony liked, and, and away we go. Correct me if I'm wrong, Brad, but you also have a military background as well. Yes, yes. I'm a, So I've got three jobs. I'm a computer geek full-time for uh, a big healthcare company in Utah. And then I'm a chief warrant officer in the Army Reserve, and that's my weekend job. And then the Bat Cave job is, is the writing. So, yes, I have... I have those three <laughs> jobs. And the, the military job has actually gotten really busy lately. They're, uh, they've had us ramped up to go on a deployment to West Africa that got axed. They, they canceled that, but then they remissioned us, and so probably I'll be leaving uh, midsummer to go to uh, the Middle East. Wow. Wow. <laughs> That's me. Well, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm best known for the uh, Monster Hunter International series, the Grim Noir Chronicles uh, trilogy, uh, Dead Six Military Thrillers. I also write novels for uh, Privateer Press for the War Machine Universe. So um, I think I'm up to 13 novels now. I first one came out about six years ago. I uh, started out self-published, did really good with that, then switched, uh, got picked up by Bayon Books. And I don't know, I've written a couple dozen short stories and novellas and things of that nature. So I've so, uh, been busy. It's been a busy few years. And uh, I'm, But I'm best known as as the uh, dungeon master of uh, Brad Torgerson's game group. (laughs) Everybody has to have a claim to fame, right? (laughs) And again, for for people out there who aren't maybe familiar with with your work, you're also a firearms expert and instructor. Oh, yeah, that's what I did before. That was my my career for many years. I was in the gun industry. Uh, I was actually a machine gun dealer, Title VII SOT, or anybody that knows about that kind of thing. Uh, we did a lot of uh, machine gun suppressors, worked with military, worked with law enforcement. I was a Utah concealed weapons instructor for many years and uh, did gun rights lobbying before I got into writing. One of the things we wanted to broach with with you gentlemen, obviously, is this whole discussion because it's reached, it's reached almost mem status around uh, the Sad Puppies campaign. And and everybody who has a professional stake in the Hugo Award seems to have an opinion about what the campaign's about, and that opinion seems to either run the gam- it, it runs the gamut of this is the best thing ever from a discourse standpoint, or they want to uh, poke you gentlemen both in the the eyes with uh, with hot needles. Oh man, I'd be lucky <laughs> if that was it. <laughs> <laughs> Just hot needles. Just oh, hot needles. <laughs> Man, they want to burn me at the stake and, you know, for witchcraft. Yeah, yeah they, they, they would string Larry up and, and hang him by his entrails if they could. <laughs> they could. Well, so so we've hit we've hit the end of the spectrum. That's good. You gentlemen have have clarified this, and, and we don't probably in the time we have together we can't get into all of the discourse. But there's a a lot of contradiction, and and that's the reason why we wanted to have you on the show was to have you have the opportunity to to really express what the, the goal of the campaign's about. So help for those that aren't, that they're living in, under a rock somewhere. What, what's the goal of Sad Puppies? Well, it started, it started out a few years ago. Um, I, I had attended Worldcon. I had been nominated for a Campbell Award uh, for Best New Author. And what I discovered very rapidly was that as soon as they announced the nominations and my name got out there for the first time in front of these people, uh, a lot of people started having a freak out because I am openly 
conservative. I'm a registered Republican. I did gun rights lobbying and sold machine guns for a living. So it's pretty obvious where I fell politically. And immediately within the first, I don't know, day, it was pretty obvious that I was going to come in dead last because of politics. And it was a big clique of people talking about how, well, you know, we're never going to read him. He's evil. He's bad. He's a horrible person. You know, we can't have horrible people like this be recognized. He's going to end the literature forever. You know, it was, it was absurd. <laughs> but I mean, I come from a, a political background where you don't put up with that crap. You fight it. And so I went away from that and I got really busy for a while, but that kind of bugged me. And then I decided a few years ago that, you know what, this system is very biased and that there's, you know, the nominations are kind of controlled by certain little cliques. And now don't get me wrong. I think most of the world con voters are inherently honest people who really value the system and they treat it very seriously. So I have nothing to respect for those people, but I believe that they are, um, they're not out, outnumbered, but they are outmaneuvered. So what happens is these little politically motivated cliques basically nominate all their friends and get all their people in there based upon the politics of the person, not the quality of the work or the entertainment of the work. So three years ago, just for fun, I put up a couple blog posts as a joke about um, how this was causing puppy-related sadness. And uh, it was a takeoff on the Sarah McLaughlin video of, you know, sad puppies, and, you know, donate money. You know that video that come on playing the music and just punch oh, in yes. the heels? Oh, yeah, okay. I hear the angel in my ears. Now, you've earwormed that for me. Thank you, Larry. Yeah, I'm exactly. so, Sarah McLaughlin, so of course I know that that, uh, that set of commercials. <laughs> so it was, a, it was a joke. And so I did a, a couple blog posts just saying, hey, if you want to combat you know, puppy-related sadness, and, you know, nominate me for it, you go. Because I knew it would tick these people off. And I didn't think it was going to work. I, it was just a joke. But then it surprised me I actually came in sixth <laughs> out, out, of the five, out of the five finalists at one day in our space. And so at that point I was like, okay, this is really interesting. And the next year, we had more fun with it. And this time, I, uh, I, uh, my spokesman was a manatee named Wendell. I, I'm not making that up. And we did a series <laughs> of uh, stupid little videos and funny videos and some cartoons. And we got in, I believe, out of the, out of the 10, 10 or 11 people we pushed, I think we got seven or eight Hugo nominees, people who would normally be ignored by the, you know, they're just, they're, they're normally ignored by the Hugos. And Oh man, all hell broke loose. <laughs> it was, it was the end of the world. And so we had a lot of fun with that. And we made our point because I said, my challenge was, I said that if people who are not politically acceptable to these cliques are nominated for an award, the other side will have a come apart and they'll do everything they can to slander them and, and destroy them. And then they pretty much did exactly what I said in a very public manner. And so we had fun with it. <laughs> and uh, this year, I wasn't going to do it this year. It's actually Brad that talked me into it. And so I'm going to turn it over to him. We were going we to ask you how Brad got involved. <laughs> well, well, that is an idealist. <laughs> 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 so, so basically what it was is, you know, Larry and I, I've known Larry since before I was even published. This, this, I think the first time I met Larry was at a... Uh, there's a local Utah symposium that's done every February called Life, the Universe, and Everything. And I, that's the first time I remember meeting Larry uh, when I was just, a, a, you know, just a, another hopeful like so many others. So, so Larry and I kind of go back a bit, and I, I was really happy to see him kind of putting his neck out there with the sad puppies thing because 
the one thing I discovered once I broke into publishing is it, it at least in science fiction and fantasy, I, I won't speak outside of that because my experience isn't outside of that, but in science fiction and fantasy, it, it really is kind of treacherous to be a, an out conservative, meaning you're out of the closet, you're you're known for your your political proclivities, and so uh, I, I thought, hey, you know, this is this is nice. Larry's putting his neck on the line to do something principled, to kind of point out what I had thought for years had been some some ruts and some biases, uh, not only in the genre but especially the Hugo's, because the Hugo's are are, are still propped up to this day as. You know, this is the great grand award of science fiction. Uh, and, you know, for me, as someone who, I, you know, I cut my teeth reading uh, Larry Niven and, you know, later on, Werner Vinci and Tim Stanley Robinson. And, you know, to me, what was what was really pretty amazing, uh, hard science fiction. And that's that's the pattern I've followed is to write a lot of hard science fiction. But it was it was aggravating to me because it became plainly obvious, especially after about 2010, that a lot of the classic works of the old days, there's no way they could possibly make it in the current climate because the current climate was all about, to me, affirmative action. So it either had to be about, okay, can we check a box because the author is a certain kind of person or a certain sexual identity or, or you know, can we check a box because the book does something about a, a hot-button issue, you know, sexual identity, uh, ethnic identity, transgender, you know, whatever. I mean, these things, to me, were just kind of laughable because, uh, on the one hand, I, I'd also discovered that, you know, everybody talks about, well, you should never campaign for any awards, but that was being done endlessly. I can think of at least a dozen instances of which I've become aware, and this is just me. You know, people who have been around for a few decades know far more than that, where campaigning was done all the time. It was just supposed to be done quietly. So everyone would make this noise on the surface, oh, well, campaigning is not supposed to be done. That's uncouth. And yet they were doing it endlessly behind the scenes, and it was, you know, uh, don't let it be talked about kind of thing. And so when Larry, you know, decided to do Sad Puppies, I thought that was pretty cool because he's like, okay, well, let's be open about what we're going to do. This year, you know, again, I think uh, there was no real plan at the start of the year, well, we're going to do it again. But the the conversation between Larry, me, and a bunch of other people, and there's some Bain authors in there, and we just said, okay, well, let's let, let's pick it up and do it a, a third time because there's some inertia here. And even though there's a lot of people who are very critical of the project, we actually, I think, have gotten tons and tons of very quiet, uh, behind-the-scenes people emailing us saying, you know what, you guys have guts. I would never want to do this because I wouldn't want to get the backlash, but I'm so glad somebody's doing something. And these aren't just our friends. These are like best-selling people that, are out there and they're seeing what's going on and they're saying, good, somebody's pointing out that the emperor has no clothes. And so for this year, you know, I think Larry had proved his point in spades with Sad Puppies 2. With Sad Puppies 3, I wanted to, I personally wanted to take it on and, and say, okay, let's try to get some people on here who are, are, in my opinion, you know, deserving people, both established veteran authors and new authors who, in my estimation, were going to struggle to get the notice they deserve. You know, so if I can name two examples, you know, Kevin J. Anderson's been in this industry for three decades or more. Maybe it might even be four decades now. Mm-hmm. And the guy is a powerhouse. The only person who works even close to as hard as he does is Larry. And Kevin has invested not only time in his career and, and building up this huge edifice of, of, of multi-best-selling novels, 
Uh, but he, he, he spends more time than just about anybody else I know investing in the new careers of authors. And not just mine, but uh, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of people. But Kevin cannot buy a Hugo. He cannot buy a Hugo nomination. I've never understood why this guy doesn't get at least on the ballot. Now, the answer to that question is, of course, because the Hugos are extremely biased against, one, popular writers. It's a struggle if you're popular and successful and best-selling to get on the Hugo ballot. But the other part of it is, is a lot of people at the World Science Fiction Convention have a, a bias that's been passed down over the decades about writers who do tie-in fiction for Star Wars and Star Trek and other properties like that. The very first media tie-in piece of fiction ever nominated for an award, or for the Hugo Award, was Sad Puppies 2. I uh, I got right. a, a Dan Wells' uh, Butcher of Cardoff, uh, which is a fantastic novella, brilliant. It happens to be media tie-in, but it's a brilliant novella. First time in Hugo's history, and that was because of Sad Puppies 2. So, you know, Larry broke the mold with that, and, you know, I would like to see it continue because, you know, when I was a teenager, you know, I, I loved reading the Star Trek pocketbooks novels, and there were some books by, you know, for example, A.C. Crispin or Diane Duane. You know, th these were amazingly done books, and it just, to me, it's ridiculous that somebody like, again, for example, Diane Duane can't, can't get a Hugo nomination for a Star Trek book, but she could for an original book. So I, I think for authors like that, it would be nice for them to, to at least get their due and, to, and for this bias to go away, or at least for somebody to combat it. You know, on the flip side, you know, there's people like Carrie English, who I think is a, is a terrific new writer who's, who's breaking in, and, and uh, Mike Resnick is a huge fan of hers and has done some editing on, on her work. And I, you know, for somebody like Carrie, I, you know, I would love to, for her to get the recognition that I feel like you know, she might struggle to get otherwise because, you know, again, a lot of authors don't step outside themselves to do self-promotion. And I think it's useful, especially when there's all these other little quiet campaigns that go on behind the scenes. I, I think it's, it's, it's a useful thing to kind of rattle the cage a little bit and say, okay, we're going to be open about it. We're going to put some people out there that we think are deserving. They might win. They might not. They might not make the ballot. We, we don't really care. It's for, for Larry and I, I think we both agree that we would rather just try to boost people up and, and say, hey, we think these people are worthwhile and they do great fiction and it would be great if people would you know, recognize them for what they do. And that, that well, recognition, just to clarify, because you know, Larry, you shared a very personal experience around the bias that you felt about uh, political beliefs, but if, if I'm understanding you gentlemen correctly, the, the slate isn't necessarily about just a, a singular bias in your point Oh, no, it's, it, is, it is not very definitely not in any one direction. If you look at the people that we're pushing, they're all over the board politically. And the one thing we can get behind is these are people that are good, worthy creators that are normally ignored because they're not popular with the little cliques that control the voting. Brad mentioned Kevin J. Anderson. I mean, he's got 23 million books in print. Not, some of the other ones, for example, we have uh, Chuck Gannon, Trial by Fire, is, um, is one of the things we're putting up for best novel. Chuck, uh, his politics are a question mark. You could not find anybody on the Internet that could tell you what Chuck's politics are. He's a college professor, he's an academic, he's an English professor and a scholar, and a gentleman. He's also a fantastic writer, who these people completely ignore. So we've got him in there. Jim Butcher. This is one of my personal favorites. I mean, I think Jim Butcher is one of the best authors there is, period. I mean, the guy's fantastic. He's, 
how can you have a, uh, a you know been doing this for twenty years and basically be the godfather of an entire genre, um, the genre that you know I make my living in, and he is completely ignored. He's gotten one Hugo nomination all that time, and it was for graphic novel. It was <laughs> a Dresden Files graphic novel. But for novel, no, no chance. Jim, uh, Jim, let alone, Jim, let alone, should be nominated just for his stand-up act. If you guys have ever seen oh, Jim's him, hilarious. oh yeah, if you've seen him work a crowd, my father's a huge Jim, uh, huge Jim Butcher fan. So I, I took him to see him speak and do a reading, and he kept he kept a group of five hundred enthralled for about ninety minutes all by himself. It was it was something to behold. So. Well, and, and there's, what's what's Jim Butcher's politics? I have no clue. No. I know he's yeah, an Oklahoman, exactly. but other than that, <laughs> I have no idea. He likes LARPing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, okay, but and then as I say, Marco Cruz. Here's another guy. Uh, Marco's uh, he's a German immigrated to the U.S. He's indie published. His but his debut novel, indie published on Amazon. I think he's over a quarter million copies sold. Okay. If you want to think about that in perspective, that's roughly 10 times what last year's best novel winner was. Okay? And Marco, Marco did that independently. Fantastic author. Fantastic military sci-fi series. Once again, another person who would be completely ignored. And in fact, Indy doesn't get a lot of respect at all. So, I mean, just if you look at, our, if you look at the people we're putting out for this stuff, it's not about politics. It's about, it's about they are not the cool kids. They don't get to sit at the cool kids' table. And for too long, the cool kids have been saying, our little award represents the best in the world. The thing is, it didn't represent the best. It represented the best in their clique. It represented the best that they, that they would personally let through. It didn't represent all of fandom. They claimed to represent all of fandom. So when a bunch of fans from outside of, the, uh, outside of the accepted group came in, they're still fans, they shook it up. They shook up the status quo, and they weren't the right kind of fans. And I think if years ago they had said, you know, this is our award for the stuff that we personally like, nobody would have cared. But for too long, it was, it's the best one. If you want to be the best for all of fandom, you need to actually represent all of fandom. And that's who we're trying to get involved, is the rest of us. One, one of the things that, a theme that keeps coming up is the idea of commercial fiction. And that commercial fiction, you know, for example, like Jim Butcher, that does very quite successfully outside of uh, the fandom group is something that's not being brought into the Hugos. Why do you think that is? I want to point to another author. You know, we talked about Jim. I think Jim is, is almost the perfect poster boy for somebody who is out there selling just a crap ton of books, doing a very successful, very popular series and a very popular concept Somebody else who's on the uh, on our our slate is a person I've known for about as long as I've known Larry. Annie Belay is another one like Marco Clues who has just been knocking it dead, doing uh, independent stuff. You know, she's had over a hundred thousand copies sold through Amazon, and that's just for starters. And one thing that she's been very successful at doing is stuff like uh, paranormal romance kind of fiction. So you know, she's been very good at it, and you know, I would love to see her get what in my opinion uh, the notice that would you know would be normally accorded to the clicks like Larry said there's kind of predictable habits and there's predictable people but in her case she she is being wildly successful in her niche which is entirely within the realm of science fiction and fantasy 
but you would never, I, I think, uh, see her get the recognition otherwise because she's, she's just off the radar of the usual people who get to normally have a say. And then, like Larry said, when you bring in uh, an outside bunch of uh, voices, which is pretty much what's happened over the last two years, it really changed things up, in my opinion. <laughs> say it again. I'll just say that bar- we're, we're barbarians. Yes, exactly. Yeah, it's the barbarians. You know, Chris Rush did a great article about 10 years ago where she, uh, and I think it's still up over at the Asimov's uh, magazine website, but she, yeah, she talked about basically barbarians at the gate. There's all these fans who are fans of stuff that's not on the radar of the, of the little small circle that is Worldcon, but and yet these are the people that are often keeping the, the genre alive, in my opinion, because they're the ones that the young readers are reading, they're the ones that have the wide fan bases. They're the ones that, you know, if they, like Brandon Sanderson, he'll go to a convention and he'll have a line out the door. And people were all upset last year when he finally, you know, was on the ballot with the Wheel, uh, Wheel of Time series that Robert Jordan did. And I remember, you know, it was, it was surprising to me because they announced that, and I remember watching the footage, and people are booing at the announcement. And I'm just like, what in the heck? This is stupid. Wheel of Time has been read by how many millions of readers? And the genre has how many millions of readers because of this specific series and these two authors, Brandon and, and uh, Robert Jordan, and people are booing. You know, to me, that right there, that's what killed it for me. I thought, this, this is a broken thing. This is a broken process. Let me ask you guys a question around, uh, we've talked about fandom, and we've talked about the awards, and we've talked about this about this being a click. And I, I recall having, we've had Lou Anders on our show many of times to talk about the Hugo Awards and how, to some degree, he won't, he doesn't attend the Hugos as regularly anymore as he will things like Dragon Con and other conventions because, uh, and I don't want to put words in Lou's mouth, but there's discussion of it being rather insular. So now you guys have obviously been very vocal around you obviously care enough that the Hugos matter, but the question I'm asking is, I'm, take, I'm taking in Lou's point of view and some of the conversations we've had and, and taking in this and the, the barbarians at the gate, and I'm sitting here asking myself, why do the Hugos even matter anymore? Why, why bother with, with, with all of this discourse? Why, why do they still matter? That's a, that's a very good question. I, 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 Brad is Brad is more idealistic than I am, so I think Brad should take this one, then I'll give you my version. Uh, so Go my ahead, version on that question is, no, you're fine, you're fine. Um, <laughs> no, no, I think that's a perfectly valid question, That's and that's, you know, again, what what is the, you know, why do they matter? For me, it's, it's the award that's been there from the inception of the genre going back to the 50s, when it really was a small group, you know, your actual fan base, people who read and, and supported this genre was pretty small. And you could reasonably go to a Worldcon in 1958 or 1960 or 61, and you could reasonably, you know, see the whole circle in that time and in that place. And so there's this tremendous legacy that's attached to the award. And I think for many, many years, if somebody got a best novel, Hugo, you really could say that probably that there was a, a high probability that that novel was maybe not the best per se, but definitely among the best produced that year. You know, the one I often point to is, is Ringworld, which won in 1971. You know, Larry Niven was uh, at, at that time and continued to be for years after kind of the heir apparent to the Heinlein legacy 
because Larry would write these wonderful, you know, hard science fiction books and stories, and yet they were, uh, you know, action-packed and they had adventure. And I mean, he did a lot of the same things that Heinlein did. So, you know, when when Larry would win for a Ring World, or you know, let's let's fast forward uh, uh, 20 years to, uh, I think it was 95 or 96, when Kim Stanley Robinson's winning for Blue Mars, and uh, I know Werner Vinci, I think, won for either a fire upon the deep or a deepness in the sky. I mean, there's, there's this legacy of, of the Hugos actually recognizing what we would probably be able to say realistically is this is some of the the best darn stuff being produced in its given year. And you can go back in the history of the awards and you can look at who and what kind of works are getting nominated for those categories for those years. And it's, it's a blockbuster stellar thing. And it's like, wow, that, you know, that really was the best stuff being put out by the best people. But starting about 10, 15 years ago, I think that started to falter. Um, I think we started to see the Hugos becoming a football for what I would call literary and academic tastemakers who wanted the award to not be about necessarily the best thing or even the most popular thing produced in a given year, but they wanted it to be about a, a message or they wanted to send a message or they wanted to, again, like I said, check a box. Uh, you know, whatever the hot button issue happens to be, they wanted to be able to check a box. So in in my opinion, the, the worth is trying to restore the Hugos to what they once were, to, to something where people could really pick it up and say, gosh, this has a Hugo Award nomination or a win on the cover, and uh, you know, a little blurb or whatever. This is probably going to be a great book. I think 20, 25, 30 years ago, you could pick up like Orson Scott Card's Ender's Game. Ender's Game and Speaker for the Dead, I think, truly were... The two best books, then they were back-to-back, and they both got Nebula and Hugo wins, and I think they deserved it. I think they were the best thing, and they had really good competition. You know, I would love to see the Hugos go back to being like that, where you could pick up a book that had won a Hugo or been nominated, and rest assured, this was going to be an amazing book that you would never forget. I don't think that happens anymore. So that, to me, is that's, that's where I'm emotionally invested, and I'll, I'll let Larry take it from there. Okay. Brad, like Brad, Brad really truly is interested in in the, the future of sci-fi. I am too, but in a little bit different way. I like to help a lot of authors out. I've helped out a lot of young authors, and for a long time, I would hear these horror stories from authors who basically were scared. They were scared of what they could say. They could scare. They were scared of what they could write about. They were walking on eggshells. They were afraid to create art because they were worried about angry people attacking them and slandering them for things or not. And I, I, the way, you know said, I grew up, I grew up in a very rough place. I, I have a very low tolerance for bullies. And, and that just kind of bothers me. And it bothered me to see these, these same people that were hounding these people and harassing them and scaring them and giving them writing advice. It was just horrible writing advice, but it was all about placating their personal political biases, their personal pet peeves. And, you know, I, I've gotten some attention for picking fights with these people, very public fights, and drawing attention to their, I'm trying to think of a nice word. There's not a nice word. Their craziness, their blatant, flagrant <laughs> racism, classism, snobbery. And these people are the same group of people who have been taking over the awards. And so this was kind of a chance for me to poke them in the eye. And I also give voice to a lot of other authors. Brad mentioned the behind-the-scenes support. We got a lot of behind-the-scenes support from a lot of authors and big names for you, big names, little names, people you'd be very surprised at. 
not just politically on my side, but I'm talking all over the board, not just in America. We've been getting thank yous from people saying thank you for standing up for free speech. Thank you for standing up for my ability to write what I want. Thank you for showing that these people aren't a monoculture that controls everything. And so to me, this is just one little battle in a great big culture war. I was insulted one time by a, uh, by a very popular author of social justice kind of thing. And she called me, uh, during a guest of honor speech, she called me Mr. Free Speech at all costs. And she meant that as an insult. The thing is, I take that as the ultimate compliment. I truly believe in free speech. And I believe in authors having the ability to create. So if this is one little corner that we can stand up for people's ability to say what they want, even if it offends certain little voting groups, then let's do it. That's, that's why I'm in it. Okay. Larry, um, one, one of the things that I'm fascinated by is this concept that, that's come out of the, the Sad Puppies campaign is this concept of uh, self-censorship. And you're seeing it in a lot of areas now, the idea that people are censoring what they're writing, what they want to put on paper, what they say, because of fear of retaliation, either from government, other people, writers, etc. I, from, from what I understand, just following the blog, it sounds like some authors so far have actually asked to be removed from the slate, the, the sad puppy slate. So, you know, how many authors, you know, idea-wise have requested that? And how are you guys handling that kind of a situation? I think of the, because we tried, well, a little background on that. I think a grand total is three. I have out of the, I believe we have 40 or 50 people that we put up in different categories. I think we had three back out, which is perfectly fine. And I, I can totally respect them and for that. And I'll explain why. So background last year, I did not ask the authors before I nominated them. I just picked stuff that I liked and I put it up on the slate and the authors were kind of all over the board. One of them was a friend of mine. I put up his work and you got to say, this guy is a moderate to liberal Democrat. Okay. He's very, very politically just a nice guy. Okay. He, he, I, I am a fi- fire breather compared to him. Okay. <laughs> Good guy. Great story. <laughs> I put it up and immediately he started getting, he didn't even know this was happening. He didn't know that I put him up for this. Right. So I put it up. He got a Hugo nomination as part of the sad puppy ballot. He immediately started getting attacked. We're talking vicious, flagrant, awful attacks. So he Google searches his name, and he's seeing all over the Internet that he's a racist neocon who hates women and hates minorities and is an evil person and is awful and bad and horrible. And his first reaction was to run and hide. I mean, you can't blame him. That, it's, a, it's kind of an ingrained fear reaction of authors trying to protect their careers. And he contacted me. He was, he was truly freaked out. And he, I, I won't go into it too much, but I mean, it was very upsetting. And it was actually very enlightening to me because it, it wasn't fair of me to put these other people up because just because I am used to this doesn't mean that others are. So this year when we were uh, preparing the slate, we were going through and we would try to contact the authors beforehand to ask them and if they would like to be on there or not. And we got a hold of most of them. I thought we had got everybody. Then we put it up, and we had somebody we hadn't talked to. I think it was a last-minute edition. They were surprised. They asked to come off because, you know, they don't want to get heat. Can't blame them. So we just bumped them off. And we had another person who I think we had contacted, but then he dropped off. I think our grand total was like three. But we uh, have 50 others, I believe. So 
I don't know, but basically it also was selling a lot of books for these people, so I would hope in the future. <laughs> if you've seen the book bombs we've done this week? I have, well, yeah. We had, well, we had some critics that just asked tonight. He said, Larry Korea never specifically said that you should read the books before nominating. I was like, I didn't specifically say don't set small animals on fire either. Okay, it's a good So, But we had already scheduled these book bombs, and uh, that was basically the, the goal is to get as many people as possible to read the works. So when we did the novella book bomb, we, uh, I think we got up to about 2,000 novellas sold. And what, if you understand how hard it is to sell novellas on Amazon, we got them all up to number one in every genre. And we, we just spiked it because the goal was, to get people to read these authors. It was all about exposure. Okay. So in the future, you know, we want people to know that if you get on the sad puppies slate, you're going to get read. That's kind of the goal. So, Larry, you, you spoke to this very specific attack where, you know, you got someone that politically would, would lean differently, moderate to liberal, and there's accusations about somebody being a racist and, and what have you. So because you brought it up, I, I have to go to that question because I've seen a lot of discussion on, on social media with respect to a very particular nominee on the slate at, uh, being Theodore Beale, for most oh, people yeah. better known as Vox Day. And, and I've seen some discourse even today around what would the Sad Puppies discourse look like if Vox Day had never been included. So I have to ask you guys, wh what was the thinking behind well, including Vox? I'll tell you the, the thinking back in that back. Okay, so keep in mind this is not. If you notice this year, he's not on. He's not on the ballot. But last year, keep in mind my goal was to get these people to demonstrate to the world what they're like. And so when I was going through and I was looking at shorter shorter works, I w and actually I did really like the story. I thought it was great. I thought it was a great story. Yeah. Op Opera Vita Turner. That was a good story. I enjoyed it. I liked it. I actually plugged it earlier in the, in, the, in the year to my fan base, and they liked it, too. So when I was putting together my site, keep in mind, this was not an organized thing. This was just me. This year, it was just me on my own. And so I'm looking at it, okay, you know, I like this story. They hate him. They look under the bed for him before they go to sleep at night. And uh, he's like the devil to them. But listen, you need to think he's a scumbag. In the history of art, scumbags have created art. Okay, otherwise there's a lot of, you know, Roman Polanski is going to have to get some Academy Awards back, okay? <laughs> I, was way, I was just thinking about Roman Polanski when yeah. you said scumbags have created art. Okay. Yeah. Well, here's the thing, actually, I mean, I, and I know the guy, I, I don't think he is. I think what it is is he is a guy who's an internet curmudgeon who likes to pick fights with people, who got, who got into a fight with a racist and said racist things in response to somebody who was hurling racist slurs for years. However, one person was from the approved clique and therefore got a pass, and the other guy is, you know, Satan slash Hitler and the end of the world. So, you know, I threw him on there because I did like, I mean, once again, I like the story. Oh, boy, that was, whew, that caused some controversy. But here's the thing. People who are still bringing that up, it shows that they are not, they, they don't, it's, it, once again, it's all about politics. So, okay, so last year I nominated a guy who said things they don't like. Every year, they nominate people who say horrible things about others that aren't part of their, you know, part, aren't part of their clique. That's fine. They have given awards. They've given lifetime achievement awards to people who are public supporters of NAMBLA. Okay, they, um, they are, this week they're going to bat 
for another author who said extremely racist comments and got called on it, and now they're trying to explain what she really meant to say. So the thing is, it's not, for them, it's not about right or wrong. It's about part of my tribe or not part of my tribe. So, and at the same time, yeah, yes, yeah, so I did nominate this guy's story. I mean, I certainly. Who else did I nominate? They'll ignore every other thing on there. I also, for Best Novel, one of the ones that just barely missed the cutoff last year, I nominated Sarah Hoyt, a novel, A Few Good Men. Now, Sarah Hoyt is a Latino immigrant woman who grew up under socialism and fled, came to America, learned English, became a writer and a mother, and is a great, fantastic person, fantastic author, wrote this wonderful Heinleinian sci-fi novel. The main character is a, is a homosexual man, the hero. The hero is a gay man, okay? And it's a great book. It's a fantastic book. I nominated it not because of any of those political checkbox reasons, but because it was a fantastic book. Yet at the same time, that one didn't make the cut. So obviously I hate women and minorities, which is why I nominated so many of them. <laughs> so back to the affirmative action. It's not, if I'm understanding correctly, it's not, it's not that you're against those affirmative actions. That you guys are really trying to establish and raise the profile of maybe some underappreciated works or underserved categories. I, I am in favor of equal opportunity awesome. I, I want, I want all, I want as much good stuff out there for, from everybody for everybody possible. Honestly, okay, we had a big discussion about this this week. Most people don't care what boxes an author checks on an EEOC form. Well, if they write with their initials or they have a name that could go either way, we'll often read that author for years and years and years before we know who or what they are, and we don't care because what matters is the book. What matters is entertaining the reader. And that's what we're about. We're about, you know, good stuff and new stuff and getting out exciting stuff. We're not about rewarding people who tow the party line. I, I agree with Larry. In fact, I've been talking about this online. I, I think, because for me, there's a, there's a lot of philosophy of fiction that's tied up in this. And for me, it, it comes down to, I, I think some of our, our, our best exemplars of what we would call classic science fiction and fantasy, the stuff that's really transcended the generations and, is, and is, continues to find new fans. You know, every 10 years, there's a new generation of fans that come on board. The thing that I believe very strongly is that this is fiction that has pursued adventure and exploration primarily. And if there's been a message in there somewhere or some kind of political point, or maybe a, a, a something like that, that that has always come secondary to the to the adventure or the exploration. I think starting uh, back in the 90s, and, and it's accelerated now, I think we've started to see the cart get before the horse. And, 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 and what's been unfortunate about it to me is, is that we've seen a lot of what I would call activists, and some of them try to be writers, but really they're activists first, try to come into this genre... Supposedly, the dangerous genre. If you remember Harlan Ellison's uh, anthologies that he, you know, put out a few years ago, you know, now the da now the genre doesn't want to be dangerous. The genre wants to be safe, and you have all these people scurrying around, calling people names, character assassinations, people get mobbed on blogs. You know, Elizabeth Moon was a victim of that uh, uh, not too long ago. Uh, every year, it seems like there's somebody who's a new victim, uh, and they don't even have to necessarily be in the genre. You know, poor. 
who was the British guy that was going to be up to do the... the oh, Jonathan Ross. Last year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So here's a guy I remember that from even, last year. He's not even in the genre, and he's going to be the Toastmaster. Now, frankly, I thought that was a brilliant idea. That was going to bring a, a mainstream person who was a British celebrity, very well known, and he was going to, to me, he was going to bring a lot of clout to the Hugos, and the Hugos were really going to get a, nos, a nice spotlight. Well, what happened? Almost immediately, as soon as he is, is named as he's going to be the guy, people had a freaking cow, and they were saying, oh, it's not, he's, he's going to make it so I can't be safe at the Hugos, which, okay, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm military. There's, there, a lot of this talk about safe spaces is complete crap, and it's silly, and it's juvenile, and it's infantile, and they won. They got the guy taken off. And, you know, uh, Neil Gaiman was much more, more nicely worded about it than, than I was, but, you know, he, I, even he was disappointed because he's like, oh, my gosh, are we that thin-skinned now in this genre that, that we're going to kick out this person that was going to bring a lot of uh, mainstream spotlight to our genre uh, just because of what he might say? based on his past, you know, comedy routines or whatever. And, and you see this over and over and over again, where people are like, I don't remember who the author was, but I remember, you know, a couple of years ago, an author got attacked for a book they had written because of how it handled Native Americans on uh, prehistoric Native Americans or something like that. And almost every year, there's some controversy over something somebody's written where they get accused of having fun wrong. You know, Larry has brought this up many times. You know, in the genre now, you're having fun wrong. You get accused of cultural appropriation. You get accused of racism. You get accused of sexism. You get accused of transgender phobia. The activists have, have really tried their best to make the genre become a, a game of political correctness. And most people are running scared. Authors, like Larry said, are, are terrified of what can I write? I see that question all the time with new authors now. What can I write? What can I write? You know, I, I, I uh, came out of Writers of the Future, and I remember we, we brought that up with Tim Powers, and Tim, Tim's a great guy. You know, Tim, you know, God bless him. He said, you know what? Write what you think is fun and don't give a damn. And I love that because, to me, that's, that's a writer. That's someone who's saying, you know what? I'm, I've got this story that I'm going to tell, and I'm not going to care who it might ruffle their feathers because this is a story I'm passionate about. And to me, if the, if the genre is really going to be dangerous in Harlan's word, you know, that's, that's the heart of the genre right there. You have to write what's fun. You've got to write what you're passionate about. And, and yet we have a lot of people militating in the genre to try to force, like, for instance, Orson Scott Card got kicked off a comics thing uh, not too long ago because activists were trying to punish him for some things he had said. And, and you know, to me it's one thing if a fan says, you know what, I'm just not going to buy this person because I have a problem with them politically. To me, I think that's fine. That's an individual fan voting with their wallet. But it's another thing when activists try to force a publisher through public pressure to either fire somebody or not hire somebody. You know, to me, that's, that's another level. That's, that's McCarthyism. That's blacklisting. And so right now we have this politically correct McCarthyism that is, in my opinion, is really, really strong, and, it, and it's not going away. And so Sad Puppies is, is a way to try to push back against that and to try to point out, hey, there's some crappy stuff that's going on, and there's some crappy people who are trying to strong-arm the genre as a whole into either not publishing certain authors or publishing certain kinds of content or, or cleansing certain kinds of content. You know, it's just, 
it's a really bizarre thing to be happening for science fiction because science fiction supposedly was the genre that was supposed to be all about big ideas and strange ideas and mm-hmm. foreign ideas, and we're supposed to be the, quote, dangerous genre, and yet we're, we're trying to safe ourselves into a corner. We're painting ourselves into an ideological corner where you can't say anything, you can't write anything unless it's been approved, and the, the people who want it to be safe have said, yes, we, we think this is okay for you to write. And I think that's, that's, that's killing our audience. You know, Publishers Weekly noted that science fiction publishing, at least traditional publishing, took another dump last year. We lost still more market share. This has been going on for 20 years now. We've been losing our audience, and I think a large part of it is because the audience doesn't trust their ability to pick up a science fiction novel, especially something that says Hugo nominated or Hugo winning, and say, I'm going to get a, a damn good book. They're going to pick it up and they're going to get a lecture. They're going to get some kind of morally ambiguous thing that's going to try to subvert traditional tropes and it's going to, it's going to play a lot of political games with the story and they're not going to enjoy themselves. And again, this is not even conservative readers that are having this problem. This is also uh, uh, readers on the other side of the spectrum. I've had many, many people who say, you know what, you know, yeah, I'm a liberal, I admit it, but I, I tend to agree with you guys. The stories in the books that I want to read, it, it's becoming harder and harder to find because more and more the genre is becoming obsessed with making political points, making sociological points. The Hugos have become this football for uh, activists and, and other people who want to make a political point. And, and it's like people have forgotten about the whole point of this whole enterprise, which is adventure, exploration, and if there's a message, you know, that's the passenger. The adventure and the exploration is the vehicle. If we get that order right, I think we produce good books and we keep our readership. If we get the cart before the horse, I think we lose people. And this whole idea of having fun wrong, I know Christy and I had had some conversation. I know she has a question about this this whole notion of fun, if you guys don't mind uh, entertaining us for maybe two more questions in this in this conversation. But I know <laughs> there was a reference earlier to some fun things you guys have done with the campaign. So, Christy? Oh, yeah. Regardless of whether or not you agree or disagree with what you guys, what, you know, Sad Puppies is doing... With the campaign material, Wendell the Manatee, even the names, even the names like Sad Puppies, Rainbow, Puppy Lighthouse, The Hugging. Uh, this year, I think you've got and Saddening. Um, and, you know, the comics, it's, it's hilarious. It's, you know, the stuff is damn entertaining. So what I, you know, what, what were you guys hoping to accomplish with those elements, you know, and did people, did people react to it the way you wanted to? Well, it's okay. That, I have an absurd personality, and I like to have fun. So, I, Wendell the Manatee, I will pass on your fan mail to my spokes manatee. Do so he and yeah, he, he, he Wendell's huge. He's actually got a lot of Twitter followers now too. I've noticed. <laughs> it's fascinating. <laughs> but considering he doesn't, he only he doesn't speak English. That's pretty cool. And he only speaks manatee. No, what are they? Okay, here, here's the thing. The way I look at it is. Whether you love us or hate us, you can look at the two sides of this debate and you can at least see that one side has fun. We're about, you know, my personal philosophy is, look, I'm an entertainer. My job is to entertain people. My job is to make my readers happy. I mean, I work for them. That's how I look at it. The other side thinks that the readers should work for the writer or the readers should do what the writer wants. And the writer is there to educate. So I think that's kind of a fundamental philosophical difference. And so yeah, we have fun with it. We have it's absurd. We uh, we have some funny videos up there. I mean, I, 
after I got slandered in the, the Guardian, just give you an idea how we roll here. Um, the Guardian made up a report of the Guardian made up a bunch of quotes. He fabricated quotes, and he wrote them as if I said them. And they were like these really stupid, horrible, racist things that I, I mean, it just I'm fundamentally philosophically against what he accused me of. But he just made some stuff up and he threw it out there. So, you know, I could have got outraged. I could have been upset, you know, sued for libel or whatever. But instead, me and my fans, we had fun with it. So we just took it. We made fun of it. And because it was an international newspaper, uh, somebody christened me the international lord of hate. And I actually have that on my business cards now. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, if the, if the Guardian's going to say I'm a hate monger, I'm going to run with it. I'm, I, I won't just be a hate monger. I will be the best hate monger they have ever seen. So... Yeah, you know, I mean that's we uh, the cartoons are because I'm a terrible cartoonist. I am I uh, I can't draw, so I thought what better way to do this than draw cartoons. Brad, <laughs> Brad, how do your cartooning skills compare to Larry's? There, I I can't uh, compare. Larry Larry's got me by a mile on that one. So I, I which is saying a lot. His uh, Korea color cartoons from last year; those were awesome. <laughs> Well, excellent. We one of the things we wanted to ask you. So, full in the interest of full disclosure, we should probably offered this up at the beginning. <laughs> but <laughs> at the tail end of this, we're going to offer it up now. Is that Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing ended up on your slate in the the fan cast category, and we'll, we'll we'll see how that serves us after this discussion. I'm waiting to be called a racist tomorrow, um, but. What, the the question Christy and I have is what what made you all think to include us in in, in this show? So I'm going to go a little meta well, yeah. on you, a little meta on you here, and this was probably a Brad thing. Brad's going to say I was I was just on the show, so what, yeah. This uh, actually is Brad, Brad's recommendation that uh, Brad Brad brought it before our group, which we jokingly call the uh, Evil Legion of Evil, and uh, it's a, just a group of uh, authors and many of whom I won't reveal their secret identities. <laughs> but yeah, Brad. Um, so Brad Brad is uh, who recommended, and uh, the rest of us checked you out, and we decided to throw you guys on there, so I'll give it to Brad. Yeah, for me, again, if we're, if the goal of Sad Puppy 3 was going to be to try to, to really have a, an impact on the Hugo slate for 2015, you know, I, I wanted to try, again, to put some things on there that I believed were completely quality product, but things that might not otherwise show up just because they don't have visibility with the people who make the selections. And really, that's uh, for me, that's, that's about 70% of it this year, was I just wanted to put some programs, some books, some stories, and some authors within striking distance of a Hugo nomination, th- uh, things and people uh, that I thought were doing good work. And yeah, you guys were nice enough to, to interview me, but I think, you know, you guys are doing good work. I saw no reason why you shouldn't be at least within striking distance of of the fan cast uh, portion. Again, uh, there's a few regulars that we know are always going to be on there. Um, sure. uh, 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 writing Excuses is one that I know is always on there because it's very, very popular and it's, it's, it's established itself and has become almost kind of an entrenched kind of thing. And, you know, for me, if, if, if we're going to be the, the outside voice trying to come into the inside, uh, I thought it would be worthwhile to take some things that I thought were every bit as good as the stuff that's usually there, but just doesn't 
doesn't get there. And again, for me, part of my emotional investment in doing this, even though it's a lot of work and people call you a lot of bad names, was making the Hugos live up there to their reputation, to be more representative of what's actually going on out in the field. For example, in the smaller categories, trying to shake it up, I won't name any names, but there's one person that absolutely hates sad puppies, and he has, what is it, Brad, 48 Hugo nominations? Uh, that's 45 or 48? Oh, uh, <laughs> yeah. Right, yes, uh, yeah. Okay, and yeah. so I can't imagine, I can't imagine why a guy with 50 or 48 or whatever, I can't imagine why he would be upset about a program that brings in outsiders to the awards. A little entrenched, huh? A little, just a little <laughs> you <know>. entrenched. <laughs> Well, that, that was the other part of it for me, too, was, you know, Stan Schmidt uh, was my editor at Analog, and he was the guy that really kind of welcomed me in the door and helped me become established at that magazine, and, and I think I've done well with the readers. And Stan had been nominated many, many times for Hugo, but he'd never won. He finally retired, and they finally coughed one up for him. At last, they finally gave Stan his due. Well, you know, with all due respect to Gardner Dezois, Gardner had won 20 Hugos while Stan had been doing the same job at the sister magazine of Asimov's. To me, past a certain point, it starts to get a little ridiculous when you have two men doing basically the same job, and, and one of them is, is almost the default winner every year for practically 20, 25 years, and the other guy just can never, ever, ever come close until he leaves the field as an editor. And to me, it, it just it just sucks rocks that the Hugo is the kind of award where, yeah, we're not going to give you your due, even though you've been practicing in this field forever. Like, again, Kevin G. Anderson has never even been nominated. And well, are makes, we going to wait till he dies? Me, yeah, it makes the Oscars look fair. Uh, yeah, another exactly, one is Tony, yeah. Tony Weisskopf. Tony Weisskopf is one of the most respected editors in uh, genre publishing. She took over a publishing. She took over Bayon after Jim Bayon died, and she ran with it. She's done a fantastic job. She has, you know, cultivated so many good authors. I mean, we're talking dozens and dozens of authors, and she's edited, I don't know how many, how many books. I mean, hundreds. And she's an amazing. She's a powerhouse. Everybody knows who Tony is. Tony had never gotten a Hugo nomination in her life until I did Sad Puppies. Every year, Tony get passed over. Uh, there's another editor at a different publishing house who is beloved by the some of the cliques, some of the social justice cliques, and I think he's up to ten, I think, recently. Yeah, I think. And so, think it's, right. and so, how how can you be an award that represents supposedly the best of the industry, yet you routinely ignore people like Tony Weisskopf and Stan Schmidt? And Tony ended up winning, did she not? That was that. Well, I'm trying to. I'm going back. Okay. Australian rules voting. No, she uh, she came in first, but then the way Australian rules voting works, and this is also why Sad Puppies doesn't actually expect to win any Hugo nominations, why we expect to just get nominated, is because uh, it doesn't pick the most popular, it picks the least disliked. Because every time you eliminate, like, so they'll, they'll, they'll stack up the votes, then they'll eliminate whoever's last, they'll take the votes from that person, and they'll move it to those people's second choice. And so what happens is it also makes it so that, unlike many awards where they'll have these entrenched cliques and they'll, they'll split the vote between their favorites, and so they'll lose, that doesn't happen with Australian rules, because if one of them is eliminated, those votes will just go to the next favorite. 
So Tony actually uh, won the original vote count, and then uh, I think she came in second or third. Second or third, and I remember she had finished up high, but I couldn't recall who had won that year. Okay. Well, it's kind of funny. I I came in, because here's the thing about these people like to move the goalposts. So my public, for Sad Puppies 2, I very publicly said my goal was to get people nominated. I mean, I'm a retired auditor. I'm a retired financial analyst. I I crunch numbers for fun. I, I make spreadsheets for fun. Okay. And so I knew going in just demographically that there was no way in the world I was going to win. So my, once again, I said, you know, both of my people, my goal was to get nominations to prove my point. So we get in there and I came in actually fourth or in the, in the original vote count behind in, in England behind two British, two popular British authors and the entire wheel of time. I will take it. <laughs> so, but, but because, because not, because none of us wanted Hugo, immediately many of the authors that hate us, many of the people on the other side, immediately took to Twitter, ranting and raving in giant all-caps Twitter screeds about, oh, what a failure. They're so sad. I bet they're suicidal. They're depressed. And I was like, you know, if I had won, I wouldn't have proved myself right. (laughs) Why would I be depressed (laughs) for achieving exactly what I said publicly I was trying to do? It's, it's, it's It's an interesting process. And you know, we're three years into it, so it's it's going to be really interesting to see. It's going to be really interesting to see how this develops. But the the goal ultimately is to have somebody that's on the slate win by hopes of probably having inclusion of additional votes. Well, and, and right? good stuff. Yeah, and yeah, good. that's that's the thing. Everything we're putting up. I mean, we've invited people to read it. I mean, the stuff that we're putting up. I'll give you an example. In one of the related works categories, oftentimes the stuff in related works that wins is. I, I'm trying. I don't want to insult any. I don't want to insult anybody. But but there's there's sometimes things that win that they're pretty obvious why they're in there because they appeal to one little one little group. And in the smaller categories, it doesn't take a lot of votes. If you look at the stuff that we're putting up in our related works category, we've got big brain, big time DARPA level science stuff about you know the nature of scientific inquiry from a guy who's probably going to win the Nobel Prize for figuring out how the human brain works. We've got a giant treatise on fourth-generational warfare. <laughs> We've got all these big brain, big, interesting, tied into sci-fi, tied into genre, big idea stuff against yet another demographic X loves Doctor Who. Yes, we know. <laughs> you know um, and so, I mean, yeah, Doctor Who's great. It all, it's one like 50,000 things, you know, good for Dr. Who. So we're just trying to, we're trying to put some quality stuff out there. If you look at our best novel list, we've got some fantastic works. We just did these novellas. Um, we just did these short stories. We're putting quality stuff out there and we would, we would hope that people would read it. And, but what we're seeing instead is from the people on the, the click side who immediately proclaimed very proudly that I am not going to read this hateful stuff by these hateful, hatey, hate mongers. I don't want to be exposed to their evil, bad think or their horrible, wrong fun. So, you know, but like I said earlier, I think most Hugo voters are honest. I think they, they cherish it. They're proud of Worldcon. They're proud of their history. And they're going to they're gonna read it and vote it. And, I, you know, I respect those people. And I hope that they do. And, and a lot of them may be mad at me, but here's the thing. They can say bad things about me. They can say bad things about Brad. We're not going to slander them or damage their careers. So feel free, <laughs> World Club voters, to rip on us. 
for doing the same things that the other people have been doing for years, but you haven't been allowed to say anything about them because they'll come and ruin you. So, you know, we don't mind. <laughs> it's okay. We're doing this as a public service. Go ahead and yell at us. Yeah. Well, and Hugo Awards are no. If, if that's not the goal, I'm sure the creators of these works and the artists appreciate you showcasing them, the, the vast majority. And I know we appreciate you guys showcasing this little show we have here. So you guys have been too kind with your time and we're over where we said we were going to be this evening. But one of the things I want to make sure that you guys have the opportunity, if there, is there anything that Christy and I didn't, didn't ask you guys that you'd like our listeners to know? So is there something you'd want to want to mention to, to our listeners that I may have missed? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I want to, I want to pitch in this because I, I want to address, I, I don't think Larry or I came to this project thinking, you know, we want to beat up on the people at Worldcon. I don't think either one of us has any kind of animosity towards any specific fan who's a Worldcon fan. My, my personal thing is I just want to rattle the cage a little bit and change the dynamic of the selection process so that it's more inclusive of the broader field as a whole and that so that the hugo maybe if this picks up steam and this you know we start to get some real inertia that carries on over three four five maybe even ten years that the hugo again becomes an award that really does recognize what it initially recognized which is you know the the truly best and the and the most successful stuff in the field and that's not saying that i think hugo selection process in the past has been done maliciously. I don't think any of it's been done maliciously, but you know, people don't necessarily have to be doing something malicious for a rut or a, a bias to creep into the process. So, you know, a lot of people have been very, very upset, and, and there's been a lot of accusations made that, that we're trying to ruin something or we're trying to be mean to people. And again, like Larry said, you know, we, you know, people can say bad things about us all they want. We're not going to go out there and try and ruin somebody's career. We're not going to spread rumors about them. We're not going to try to uh, tank their chances with an agent or an editor or whatnot. You know, we're Larry and I don't operate from a standpoint of trying to make people afraid. In fact, I want to point out that that's something that I think Larry and I are fighting against. Mm-hmm. Is there's this undercurrent of fear in this genre? Larry and I are there to fight against that, and we're saying, you know what? Don't be afraid. Let's let let's let's stop with some of this bullshit that's been going on, and let's try to make this a fun thing again that truly represents and is representative of the, the wider taste of the actual consumer market that is keeping this genre alive. Thanks, Brad. Yeah, I don't slander people. If I, if I come after you, you know it. <laughs> 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 I, I, do it the very, I do it the very Malcolm Reynolds way, you know. You'll, you'll be awake and facing me. <laughs> what, what, was the, what was your title on your card again? Larry, I just want to get uh, that interna- Well, actually, I've got, I've got several. Uh, International Lord of Hate. Shogun of Korea Tech, Lord of Yard Moose Mountain, Manatee Whisperer, and The Mountain Who Writes. That's Brad. a new one, isn't it? The Mountain Who that's Writes. That's a new one. I just added that's that. That's the new one. Yep. Brad, you don't let him come up with your titles, do you? <laughs> I, I, think, I, I think I've been deemed the I've, I've been deemed the powder blue care bear with the bleeding heart on the chest, and I happen to carry a flamethrower. <laughs> Uh, I think that's a perfect note to end on because I, I think at some point that Brad, if I see you, I might give you a hug. So <laughs> <laughs> it's 
It needs to be on a cartoon. Yeah. <laughs> There's your cartoon campaign for this year. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you're right. Blue, you're absolutely right. <laughs> the powder blue Care Bear. Well, ge- gentlemen, we both very much appreciate the time this evening to explain the campaign and share that with our listeners. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot for joining well, thank us. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Thanks for having us. Thank Visit Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing for show notes, links, reviews, special guests, videos, and more. Email us at adventuresinsci-fi-publishing at gmail.com. Sound effects from the Free Sounds Project. Music by Asymmetry, found at musically.com. No authors were seriously damaged in the making of this podcast. <laughs>